as I was saying, part, I kind of forget, you kind of, or I even forget after the summer about just all, all the introductory stuff we have to do to get into the Bible. And I'm in Minor Prophets, I'm in Intro to Biblical Languages, and just so much preliminary things. And they're good things, they're very important things. But uh, I look forward to the weeks where we can actually be in the world itself, because that's, that's where the valuable stuff is. Um, uh, you know, what I say, that's, that's not very profound, but what, when the Bible speaks, that's when things become deep and meaningful. Well, anyway, I think we are in 2 Samuel, yes? This is 2 Samuel. If you're looking for English comp, it's in the next class over, um, or whatever they're teaching. So, <laughs> uh, I'm going to hand out, after we pray, a roll sheet, so you can sign your name to make sure you get credit for this class. If your name's not on the list, that's okay. You're, you still can get in. You just put your name at the bottom, so that the registrar will know that you are supposed to be in this class, okay? So with that, let's begin with the word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for the book of 2 Samuel and the drama, its beauty, um, the theological impact that has not only on the past, not only on the present, but eternity. Thank you for how it displays your glory, uh, the majesty of your of your sovereignty, your ability to be king, and what that means, and what that demands, and what that entails. And thank you for what it demonstrates about human frailty, as well as the ability that you have to redeem us. And as we, as your people, dive into your word this semester, may it be something that invigorates and excites our soul. And may it cause us to worship you all the more deeply and to acknowledge that you alone are God and to wonder and to marvel and to recount to future generations the glory of your plan. So help us even now to encourage and edify each other. Make us redeem the time now. Grant us the perseverance to be faithful and the longing to come out from our hearts to learn these things for the right reasons and to learn these things well and to know the details and to know the big picture and to know everything we can know so that we would live the way we ought to live and worship with the zeal that you deserve, that you died for. So give us strength, O oh God. We depend on your Holy Spirit now. May he guide our discussion. We entrust this class into your hands. In your name we pray. Amen. Here's a you know, roll sheet. So just if your name's on there, check it off. If your name's not on there, write your name down. And that's all you have to do. Okay, you are in 2 Samuel. Let's go over some course descriptions, objectors, requirements, etc., etc., and then I'll introduce the class. And maybe, maybe for the first time we'll get out early. Now that probably is a lie. But, uh, but hey, that, it's a nice lie to believe. I mean, because every other class, it's definitely you won't get out. So that, that's easy. Uh, course description. I made it up. Because 
because Dr. Halstead needed something to put in the catalog. And since 2 Samuel's never been taught before, I just said, well, we're just going to study 2 Samuel. <laughs> it's like, what a, what a profound concept. So um, you can read that for yourself. Here's the course objectives. There are three of them. And so I don't have any tests or quizzes in this class. I hate tests and quizzes. Uh, I'm glad that nowadays the only test I'm going to have to take in the future is the DMV test. Uh, and, that, and that even can be a stressful experience to me. I, I just don't like those things. Um, they're not good. I mean, does the DMV test cause people to have less accidents? I've never seen that proven before. But anyway, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, uh, course objectives. Here's how you're going to evaluate yourself. Sometimes people come up and I'm like, did I really learn anything in your class? I'm thinking, I don't know if that's the greatest insult uh, for me or for yourself. You know what? Uh, but here's how you can measure how you learn. Okay? If you can sit down with somebody and they say to you, what is 2 Samuel about? I mean, what is there to learn about 2 Samuel? And you can start talking to them and walking them through the book in detail and explain to them, oh no, you, you totally don't understand 2 Samuel. Like, I never understood 2 Samuel until this semester. And you just start walking them through, oh, you got to understand this person, how he fits here, and this section, oh, this is really great. And, and you start walking them through the book, and oh, there's this important theological concept. It like controls the rest of the Bible. So basically, if you don't understand 2 Samuel, you can't understand Psalms, Proverbs, uh, prophecy, like major and minor prophets, Matthew, Revelation, Ephesians, you know, and, you just, and you're like, what? And if you can start to walk them through that and show them how this one book has this massive ripple effect, then, then we're, 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 we're doing well. That's letters A and B. Letter C is also important because this class will help, hopefully, to teach you how to understand Old Testament narratives. You see, in the past, the way we kind of dealt with Old Testament narratives is, well, fundamentally wrong because it's always about us. And so Cain and Abel becomes a story about why you shouldn't hit your brother. And, uh, you know, Jesus breaks bread and he makes lots of bread so you should share with other people, you know. Like, because the little boy, he didn't tell Jesus no. Yeah, with the five loaves and two fish, like he just gave it willingly. I mean, that's like that's not even the remotely near the main point of the gospel. It's like this is not the gospel of the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's like hello. Anyway, um, you need to learn how to understand a narrative because there's a whole bunch of them in the Bible, right? I mean, like Genesis through at least. Esther, that's like half the Old Testament. Then Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, that's a big chunk of the Bible too. That's like all of New Testament survey one. You need to understand narratives. And there's a lot to be understood. It's just not as simple as you make it seem to be. It's not as simple as the flannel graph story they put on the board when, you know, like, oh, look at this guy. And he's just like dancing around or whatever. And, and it's the same guy every week. Right? They all do, I mean, because they're all dressed the same anyway, so you can reuse them. You know, so Moses becomes Elijah, who becomes Elisha, who becomes Jesus. You know, and, 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 and they're always on the right-hand side. You know, they're always on this side, and the bad guys are always on this side. So this guy's like Judas, Esau, <laughs> Egyptian, 
bad man, you know, like bad Canaanite, you know, all those guys. They're on the other side. Uh, Roman soldier, you know, like because they stick a little helmet on the guy and they have like a little sword in his hand. And it, it's just not that way. Just really is not that way. That is a complete fallacy. I mean, much less than, I mean, abomination. So, there's a lot to understand about narratives. Uh, I was... I don't think I was saying in this class. I think I was saying in my Intro to Biblical Languages class. I was talking to Boyd about this one narrative issue. It's in the Bathsheba narrative, okay, like chapter 11-ish. And we were talking about one verse, one phrase of one verse, and how it impacts the entire story of 2 Samuel for 10 hours. Like I docked, I like, not consecutively, but just... I mean, we talk about it for two or three hours here, another two or three hours there, a couple hours somewhere else. And we're going through the Hebrew. We're trying to really think through how all this works, narrative strategy. Think of it this way. Narratives are complicated, just like a movie's complicated. Right? Those of you who are either in the film industry, like are familiar with how to do kind of chapel media kind of, kind of uh, angle on, on how to do film, or if you just watched a movie with the special features, right? You know it's complicated to put everything together. You know there's a strategy. Right? You could put that camera at any single angle. Right? You could do that. Why does the Bible choose one specific angle? What does that mean about what's going on? You, and what does that talk about theology and all these other kinds of things? You've got to really understand how to understand an Old Testament narrative. Because if you understand this, then you can understand the rest of the narratives of the Bible. It's not just so simple as, oh, look what happened here. Well, okay, let's pop a little cool lesson about what we should do. It's not that easy. That's naive. Okay? And frankly, that's just not being faithful with the intention that God has revealed in that text. There's a strategy. There's a narrative strategy. And it is very complicated, and sometimes it will blow your mind of what's going on. <clears throat> so you need to understand how to interpret and apply an Old Testament narrative. Yeah. I had a friend, and he once time preached a sermon, I could not believe this, uh, from Jephthah. Everyone remember Jephthah? He had his daughter, remember, and, and he, he chopped her to pieces. What a wonderful man. Uh, and, and he preached on why we should be like Jephthah. And I was like, what? You, know, like, you mean the guy that the Bible hates? You're like, why would you? You're like, well, well, why should we be like Satan? You know, why, why would you preach like that? You know, uh, hello, you cannot do this. He's like, well, he's a character in the Bible, and they're all models for us. I was just like, I don't know what to do with you. You know, I was thinking, ooh, how many murder stories are in the Bible that I can model right now? Uh, the, I mean, gotta think through this, people. You can't just come out with a blanket statement. Oh, here's a Bible story. Let's teach a little kid about some kind of moral issue. No. 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 Don't do that. Because it won't work. And not only that, if there's no theology by which moral actions are based upon, then there's really no moral action. There's this wonderful article on CNN. You know, like the liberal news? CNN put this article out. And it was great. I don't say that about many things CNN does, unless I'm talking about typographical errors or uh, logical fallacies. I mean, CNN, it was just a wonderful thing. And it's about a book called Almost Christian. 
almost Christian. I think I don't even know if the person who wrote it is a believer. Uh, she's a prof of religion at Princeton Seminary. Uh, like I said, I don't know if she's a believer. You're like, but she's at a seminary. That's, that's irrelevant. Um, and her point was that nowadays churches have what they call deistic therapeutic rationalism. And that's just a fancy way of saying you use God as your therapist to make you feel good, to make you do good things, to make you change. And that's why, that's how churches pitch everything, and that's why when people go to college, even if they've been churched all their lives, they just leave the church. They're not leaving Christianity, per se, because I don't think they were ever believers. They just leave the church because why? A prof shows them, hey, you can get the same morality, but have even more freedoms without the God. And they say, well, put me on that boat, right? That makes me feel even better. And then they just leave. Uh, it was, it's a well, well done article review on the on a important, very highly important book. I recommend you go to CNN, type in Almost Christian, and read the article. It's just good. Um, I don't recommend the Princeton lady's suggestions, per se, but she makes some precise observations. And this is the problem. What we reinforce when you just say, hey, look, uh, David killed Goliath, kill your own Goliaths, or David... uh, slept with Bathsheba, don't, don't sleep with women, you know, something like that. You're going to get nowhere because you haven't understood what the Bible is talking about and you haven't actually impacted the person's mind and changed through the Word of God and ministry of the Holy Spirit, their heart. It's just moralism. You need to understand how to apply an OT narrative correctly. If you do it wrong, they just get another idol that they can just as easily walk away from. Okay, so that was a spiel for that. Course textbooks, there are none. Because instead what I did is I went to the library, and you you will too. By the way, the library, I just cannot compliment enough what they're doing. Although I wish they would have done it faster for everybody's sake, but they put like new paint on the walls, so it looks kind of Starbucks-y. It just... I was like really impressed. I was like, why, why didn't they do this when I was a student here? <laughs> and then, and uh, I used to have, my, my office used to be in the library. It's not anymore. I, they gave me an office in the Bible office now. They're really nice. And, uh, <clears throat> and I was like, why couldn't they have given me an office in the library when it looked like this? You know, that would have been wonderful. And, you know, the, the legacy room is coming along and all that kind of stuff. But the library has just a lot of good resources on Second Samuel. It does. So what I did is I checked them all out. So that, and put them on reserve for you. So you can go to the library front desk, or side desk, or wherever that desk is, and you can say, you know, I'm looking for Chow's stuff on 2 Samuel. I want to check out this commentary. Okay? And I put on a list for you, and I'll hand it out next time, an annotated bibliography of the resources that are available for you at that library, at this library. So you all can, there's no excuse for you. You can't say somebody else checked it out because that's impossible. It's in that library. It can't leave that library. You will be in that library. And you can be reading those books to help you understand 2 Samuel better. There's just a whole host of resources. So there's not one book recommended or required. There's a whole bunch of books recommended for you to access. Do the hard work, guys. Uh, you'll never get anywhere without it. Just won't. 
You got to do it. Right? You got to get into the books. Enjoy that. I mean, the library is beautiful. Just enjoy it. And, and read the books and read your Bible and really get deep into the Word. Okay? Um, at the same time, this requested, it's like we're on the next page. I'm making like a one, what's called a OneNote file, which is where I have your notes down, except they're all blank. And on the computer, I'll drag and drop files here. In fact, uh, you may flip through and you may see, I already, you can see icons of files printed on your page. Well, that, those, are, those correspond to real files embedded into the OneNote file. And OneNote's just part of Microsoft Office. If you own Office on the PC side, you have OneNote. I mean, you do. It's on your computer. You may never have used it before, but that's okay. You have it. And in the end, what I do is I bundle all of those files together and I just give you one note. And you just open the file at the end of the semester and they'll have like an outline of my notes. You can put your own notes in there too. And there'll be articles, uh, sections of books that I thought were helpful. Um, there could be sermons that I thought were like really useful in, in there. Or even uh, sometimes I'll take a clip off of YouTube or under academic licensing, I can put like a part of, say, Lord of the Rings or something in, 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 the, in the helpful file section, and you can just watch, listen, whatever, and it's, it's just for there for you to use. Do you have to have it? No. If you don't want it, or, you know, I don't know, you don't have enough space for it on your computer or something, you don't, there's no obligation. I'm not offended. It's just a resource for you to use. Okay, so I'm developing that as we go along, and <coughs> And up to today, it's been pretty good. So uh, we'll see about the rest of the semester. But um, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm doing. Course requirements. Okay, course requirements. Reading. Uh, let me outline two things. You need to read your Bible. And I would highly recommend you read 2 Samuel as we're going through. Don't wait till the end. Does that make sense? Don't wait till like, oh, well, Abner says we have to read 2 Samuel, you know, really in a detailed manner, well, I'll just do it all in one night. Don't do it. You'll be lost. Right? Even as familiar as you are with the book, you will still be lost in the discussion. Does that make sense? Just keep up. And it's easy. Right? We might only cover a chapter. How hard is it to read a chapter slowly before class? You could probably do it in the 20 minutes you know, in between classes or whatever. So, read that. But there's a second thing you need to do, and write this down. There's 16 hours of additional reading on anything you desire as it relates to 2 Samuel. And you're saying, Abner, give me some topics. Okay. That's anything related to the archaeology of 2 Samuel. That's anything related to the book of 2 Samuel. So you can read commentaries on 2 Samuel if you so desire. Uh, that's anything related to the life of David. So there's a lot of books on the life of David. Some of them are good. Some of them are, are terrible. And uh, you can read those, hopefully the good ones. My annotated bibliography might help you a little bit. There's stuff on Messianic theology. If you want to read about Christology or Messianic theology or Jesus in the Old Testament, that's, that's game here, okay? Uh, you can read about those kinds of things. And they can be all kinds of books. They don't have to be like nerdy, nerdy books. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, like devotional books about Jesus in the Old Testament or devotional on the life of David, something like that. That's acceptable. And the issue is not read 16 books 
the issue is read 16 hours. Do you see the difference? So I don't want you just to like think, if I read 6,000 books, I'm going to be really impressed. No, I just care that you read the 16 hours and you put the time into it, right? So put real time into that. By the way, 16 hours gives you a little bit over an hour in a week. Just one hour a week. So if you split that up into five days, that's like 10 minutes a day of reading. You, know, like you could do that between North Campus and, and uh, lunch. So find those books. If you have trouble finding books, tell me and I'll help you. There's lots of them. Oh, or, and there's like, oh, if you're interested in, man, I just am really interested in how to study narratives better. There are tons, heaps, stacks of books that can help you do that. You know, and you can read that too. Uh, just all kinds of are books on the kingdom of God, because kingdom is a big theme in Second Samuel. So you can, there are lots of books on that. There's a whole host of things. If I want to find something. You should try to find something in the end that you really enjoy. Don't just try to find something because it's easy. Find something that you think will really benefit you in the ministry that you have. And if you need help with that, come talk with me. And we'll come up with a reading list and you just get as far as you can. Right? Because you only have to do 16 hours of it. You don't have to finish these books. <clears throat> and maybe over winter break or whatever, you can try to finish them. Reading. So read your Bible. 16 hours. Class participation. Uh, just participate. You know, laugh at jokes or ask questions. That's always helpful, you know. Ask questions. I'll bring up lots of questions. Uh, lots of controversial things. So you just respond, right? That's part of the educational process. Small position papers. Our SPPs for short. Um, <clears throat> basically, it's like at least a one-page document where I give you a question and the questions are somewhere in your syllabus and what you do is you find one resource. You go to the front desk of the library and you say, hey, I want to try this commentary today. And they say, okay, here you go. It's kind of like Starbucks, you know, it's like a book barista. And, <laughs> and uh, they, they say, okay, sure. Uh, would you like a bookmark with that, you know, or something? And then they give it to you and you say, great. And you do, you answer the question, you write down a bunch of bullet point notes for half a page about what the author of the book says in relation to the question. So if the question is, was Bathsheba on a roof or something like that, then you write about like, what the author says and why he says it. Then you spend at least another half page, either in paragraph form or bullet points, your choice, <coughs> explaining two things. What is your answer, your own answer, as well as your analysis of the, of the scholar you read? So you're going to answer the question based upon the Bible, and then you're also going to provide, like in another paragraph, so was the guy that you read helpful, not helpful? Where was he right? Where was he wrong? Does this make sense to everybody? Okay. These aren't hard. Uh, they're meant so that when you come to class, you'll upload these on the day of class to MasterNet. Everyone with me on that? You know how to do that? Then you come to class, and then we're going to talk about it. And I'm just going to say, so, who'd you guys read? Was this guy helpful? Was he not helpful? What do you guys think? All that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. So is that like on the course homepage? 
Yes. Yeah, you just click on it and upload it. That's so that I can read them easily and uh, try to save the trees and stuff. Hey, do you know, this is really cool. We got new copy machines here at Masters College. It was like in, I think it was like in July or something like that. And you know how many copies the Bible department's already made? I'm so proud of us. 250,000. Yeah. I think we're king of the hill. So <laughs> I was, we made 100,000 in the first two weeks that we had the machine. And so they had to send a guy for 100,000 copy maintenance. The guy was coming, he's like, there must, there's some error. I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, I think there's an error with your machine. Because it just rang us saying that you made 100,000 copies. <laughs> and you, you've only been here for two weeks. And he's like, I'm just here to make sure that your machine is counting properly. And he goes through it, he goes, you guys made 100,000 copies. <laughs> and I said, yeah, we'll see you in two weeks. You know, like <laughs> He's like, who are these people? We are the tree killers. Uh, the <laughs> when, we, when the last machine exited, it made a, I think we were at like 1,700,000 copies. We had killed 1,400 trees and had a carbon footprint of like 40 tons or something like that. And, and the secretary tried to use that to convince us that she was working hard. But uh, instead, we just, Bewey's like, let's make her syllabi longer. And everyone's like, yeah. <laughs> and, and then I forgot, somebody said, don't double-side my pages. Don't double-side them. So now they're like, like bringing out. By the way, yours are double-sided. You're going to hate that because you won't have enough room to take notes. But that's just because I'm trying to save one tree at a time out of the onslaught of the forests of Japan that are going down because of what we're doing. So <clears throat> that's small position. How do I even get on that? But it doesn't matter. Small position papers. They're small. Oh, yeah, I was trying to say paper. OK. Um, finally, you have, in addition to your reading class participation, SPPs, you have either a major research paper or some wiki articles, a wiki project. Okay. So no creative option anymore. You either do this, you either have a major research paper, say about 15 to 20 pages, but if you're scared of that, or not used to that, and some of you should just do it, right? You should just grow up because you are older now and you put off childish things and you, and you just need to embrace, embrace the hardship and do it, right, and learn a lot. But some of you might be new to all this, and, or you just want to make a different kind of contribution. I'm willing to understand that. A lot of times people don't want to write a research paper because they say it's not practical, no one's going to see it except for you and me, I'm never going to use it again, uh, there's a lot of work to be involved in that, and I don't know if I can do that, I don't know if I can handle that academically yet. I, I, they never taught us how to write research papers in high school, uh, they just taught us how to think about nothing. So the thing is, you're like, okay, I understand, you know, all these problems. So here's what, a, everyone use Wikipedia once in a while. I use it to watch all my movies. So like, I'll give a movie illustration class. I've never seen the movie before. I just read on Wikipedia. So if Wikipedia's wrong, I'll be wrong about the movie. Uh, you know, people are like, yeah, and did you see this one scene? No, never saw it. Uh, you know, or that's how I actually did Lost. Um, I just read Lostpedia, the whole thing. And, uh, and people are like asking me questions like, yeah, and like Hurley, and I'm like, like, do you like his hair, new haircut? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> I don't have an opinion about that because I don't. I've never seen 
an episode of Lost ever. You know, they're asking about all these advanced Lost issues, and I just read about it on Lostpedia. So, you used Wikipedia. I created a wiki for Bible. That's what I did over the summer. And you can go, there's a link that I gave you on your page, www.expositorswiki.wikispaces.com. Your job, if you so choose to do this side of the project, is to write three, four articles for that wiki. Okay, they're your articles. They're going to be posted on that website for everyone to see. I mean, anyone can access this website. You don't have to go through Masternet or anything like that. So the goal is ultimately in the end. Your work, it's your work. It's online. And <clears throat> let's say you're at church or you're at Bible study and some, somebody just has a theological question or a question about a passage. And you say, hey, you know, why don't you just wiki it on this site? That's the, that's the goal. Um, think of it this way, just in terms of volume. I teach minor prophets right now, and there's about 40 people in that class, about 30 people in this class. If each of you gives me three to four articles, that's about 120 articles from both classes, that's 240 articles already on that part of the Bible. Um, my goal is to kind of develop this so that in about two years, we have a really good foundational base and it can be a full launch, right? I mean, already you can launch it. It's just not going to have everything that everyone's looking for. But, and then after every semester after that, the output is about 200-something articles a semester. It's a lot, you know, uh, compared, to the, compared to like Theopedia, which is, a, which is a good website, although it's going bankrupt. Um, <clears throat> they only produce one new article every three to six months, you know? So when you produce like, 200 times that amount, uh, you're in business. And I'm not selling this. This is free. Does that make sense? It's totally free. I mean, I even had it so that it's on a free page. Oh, can I pick up your phone for you? So, um, no problems. The, the, that's kind of the idea of uh, this expositor's wiki. Does that make sense to everybody? And this is practical. People are going to use it. Right? I've already been preaching through a variety of churches this summer, and I just said, you know, because they asked, how do you want us to pray? And I said, oh, you know, I'm trying to start this wiki. I have churches. I don't know how this, how things happen. They're just emailing me, like, when is it going to launch? And I'm like, I told you. It's like, it's not till like, December at earliest. They're like, well, well just give us an email, because we want to look at it. You know, so people are going to, I mean, and I have already, I haven't even launched the site, and I already have people asking to become you know, moderators and members, and they're kind of big in the scholastic world. And I thought, how did you even hear about this? Like, where did you come from? You know, like, okay, you know, sure, why not? Yeah, be my guest. You know, so do whatever you want. Um, <clears throat> so we'll talk more about that. But you might ask, what what can I write on a wiki site? Right? What what could I do? Anything in Second Samuel's gain? Any passage? any person. So maybe you're thinking, man, I really like to do the life of David, or I like to do the life of Joab. That might be interesting, right? Like write a bio on Joab. That's game. Uh, maybe you're thinking, maybe some of you have been to Israel. Has anyone been to Israel in here? Yeah. And you're thinking, oh, I'd like to write about certain places with pictures and stuff. Okay, great. Do that. So you can, you can say, I'm going to choose, and with places, you might have to do a little bit more because they're a little more simplistic of a site to research and stuff, depending on how you do it. You, I mean, you can, we can work, we can negotiate this. You might have to do, like, five places, and then you're done. 
you know, and you do, you show us pictures, you show us where it is on the map, just like a normal wiki site, right? Yeah, that's what we're looking for. And you show us a detailed description of what happens, significant people, and everything like that. You could write about a theological issue, like the Davidic Covenant. That would be something that you could do. You could write about <coughs> prophecy in Second Samuel. Or you could write about some kind of methodological issue, like how to interpret a narrative and all the different views on that. Does that make sense to everybody? There's a lot here you can do. The way it works is first come, first serve. And you cannot write a duplicate topic. Does that make sense to everybody? Because would anyone really want to write, read two of the same Wikipedia articles? No, that doesn't make any sense. So it's first come, first serve. So reserve your topic as soon as you like. I mean, if you're writing on something no one else is going to write on, then you, know, you can dilly-dally a little bit. But you know, if you're like, I want to write on the life of David, I bet three or four other people are going to race you, so then just like run up and turn it in. Here's how it works for that. Flip over to the course schedule real quick. Nothing in this schedule is set except for outreach week, because Lord willing, that will happen when I'm gone for ETS, as well as the week of finals. Everything else is subject to change. But what is also not subject to change, not subject to change, is when the wiki proposals are due, wiki rough draft, final wiki posting. Okay, what does that mean? It means this. On November 2nd, I need to have in my hand however, we, however many article proposals that we negotiate. Right? Because I know some articles are going to be longer. If you say, I want to write the overview of 2 Samuel, which is a totally legitimate topic, that's not one article. That could be two. Does that make sense? That could count as two. And so you might have to do less work. You have to talk with me about this. Be in dialogue with me. Don't just wait to the last minute. <clears throat> I need that proposal in hand. That proposal tells me what you're going to do. Here's the outline of what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to talk about the life of David. I'm going to talk about his early childhood. I'm going to talk about when he's running around from Saul. I'm going to talk about when he's king. And I'm going to talk about when he dies. That kind of outline. Does this make sense to everybody? And here are the initial sources of bibliography of what I'm going to use. I need to have that in my hand on November 2nd. By November 2nd. Can you turn it in earlier than that? Yes. Would I recommend that? Yes. So you can lock in a topic. Does this make sense? Because I could just as easily give away your topic if somebody has already a proposal. Does that make sense? So lock in a topic with me. <clears throat> give me that proposal. It's due by November 2nd. It doesn't mean you got to wait till then. If you have one next week, give it to me. And let's talk about it. By November 18th, on November 18th, I will not be here. I will be in Atlanta, Georgia, talking about something. <clears throat> and, but you'll be here. And here's what you do. You'll have your articles that you've written in hand. Does this make sense? They'll be printed out with your name on it. And you will give it to the person sitting next to you who will make edits, tell you, hey, this sentence doesn't even make sense. I don't even know what you're talking about. Or, hey, that was really good. I don't see anything problems. And the person who's editing your papers will sign their name legibly so that I can make sure that your paper was checked and that there was a checker, and I can check both of you off. Does this make sense to everybody? This is what we call peer review. Okay, peer review. It means one of your peers read through your paper and it made sense. Because wouldn't it be terrible if you posted something online and, and like, you know, 
your name might not be there, but you wrote it and your mom comes back and is like, man, I, I saw that second Samuel site. Whoever wrote this article totally didn't make sense. You're like, oh, mom, that was me. You know, like, she like, doesn't know who to spell. Whose parent is this kid anyway? You know, like, uh-oh. You don't want that to happen. So pure check. You will turn all, afterwards, I'll have some, somebody, the secretary, probably collect all the papers, and she will give them to me when I return from Atlanta, and I'll do the final edits, give them back to you, and, you know, there are going to be spelling changes, or, hey, work on this sentence here, or something, or rewrite this a little bit better, or something like that. You make those changes, you post it online by finals week, you're done. Does this make sense to everybody? Yeah? Can we post it on Messenger? No, to the Wikipedia site directly. And I'll give you more instructions about that as time goes on. I don't want to dump everything onto you at one time, but it's real easy. Just clicks upload after you get to the site and, and sign in. So it's not a problem. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. <clears throat> so if you're interested in doing that, I think that'd be good. And you know, the church just needs a resource that they can rely on. You know. I'm kind of tired of telling people like, oh yeah, you could read this book, but you know, half of it's bad. <laughs> so don't, don't, don't read those parts. Like, how do I know those parts? Well, you'll know it when you see it. You know, like, or, and if you don't, then I'll talk to you about it. Yeah. Why don't we just create something that's actually reliable, that people can go to, that, that agrees with our statement of faith, they can trust, and it's good information. It's not just, you know, like, well, Samuel was a nice little boy, you be a nice little boy, you know, and, you know, Samuel means ask from God, you be asked from God, you know, something like, you know, let's have something of real substance to give to somebody. You show them why Samuel's such a cool guy through his biography, right? And it's going to be written in professional style, and I'll go through that next class of what I mean by that. Are you with me? Okay, good. So that's you can do that. You can still do the traditional research paper. That's no problem. And you could do both. You could say, hey, I want to do a traditional research paper and post it on the wiki site because I think it could fit here. Great. Good. Let's try it. Great breakdown. You can read it. You don't really need extra credit, but if you really do, let me know. Contact information. You can always email me. Feel free to do so. You can also just IM me. I not only have AIM, I have like everything under the sun. So Skype, Emerson, ICQ, Facebook, Yahoo, Gtalk, whatever. Um, <clears throat> and so you can always IM me, okay? And you can always drop by my office. Um, you know, we're here for you, so you know, just drop by. And if it's a bad time, I'll let you know. I'll tell you, it's a bad time. But usually it's not, and you just knock on the door, and, and if I'm there, we can talk, okay? Uh, we all have an open door policy, and and yeah, it's, this is a ministry. Don't cheat, okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. It's just such a pain for you, for everybody. Don't do it. It leads to death. <clears throat> Maybe leads to dancing. So I'm just joking. Uh, attendance, come to class. This is this is where the fun happens, right? Uh, it's when we discuss things and learn new things about the text together. Come to class. And if you have a learning disability, please let us know. Don't be uh, hesitant to inform us about that. And you can talk specifically with Mary McElwee. She's more than delighted to help you. Everything on the course schedule, next page, is subject to change except for what's in bold. <clears throat> so please 
uh, just be flexible with that. You can read over the SPPs um, and we can kind of, and we'll kind of go through that together. Any questions for me? Yes? Um, you have, you misnumbered SPP4 and so on. Yeah, I know, I did it on purpose. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so that's a freebie. You don't have to do that. And what I was going to do is if you really need extra credit, you could do that. Yeah, no, it's a good observation. Uh, I had all 14 on here, but it just made the schedule so full. So I just decided to drop one. And it was, in be it was between number five and number four and number five one. So that, that was easy. Any other questions? Yeah? You don't want a hard copy then of the SPP that all Yeah, I don't need one. Okay. Yeah, you can, I mean, if you want to give me one, that's fine. Okay. But um, you can just go ahead and upload them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no problems. Good question. Everyone know how to do that uploading thing? I just want to make sure. Yeah? Is it more than just research, but can it be more of a, a call to action? Like for the SPPs? Yeah. yeah, you can have that, but make sure to have the major things done before you do that. You know, uh, make sure you have have that in there, have this in there for the SPP. Yeah. For the wiki article, just keep in mind, wikis normally don't call you to action. You know, there's no kind of preaching mode in a in a Wikipedia article. It's pure information, I guess, pure data. So we're going to keep it like that. But here's the beauty of that, um, and how I kind of frame the website a little bit, is our job is not to preach for you. That's not the goal of an expositor's wiki. Does that make sense? You can't just rip your sermons from that website. That would be wrong on so many different levels. It's to give you the information so that you can actually shepherd your people. So keep that in mind. It's just one step toward the whole expositional process. So that's kind of the design of those articles. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Any other questions? Great. All right. What time do we get out? 12.35? Something like that? Good. Introduction. <coughs> First page. And I think that's what all we're going to cover today. So that next time I can give you some assignments and such. Uh, the importance of 2 Samuel. Why this book? Why this book? Uh, that, um, there is a method to my madness about how I choose books, whether that be Job or Minor Prophets or whatever. It may be Ephesians, Ezekiel, <coughs> Acts, next, next semester, Lord willing. There is a method to my madness. I was talking with a good friend on the phone and asked me, just why do you pick the books that you do? I mean, college students, you as college students, you're not here for very long, and you don't really have a lot of time, a lot of electives to just take whatever class you want. So we have to be really strategic in what books we, want, we ask you to take. I don't pick books just because, well, I would pick some books, but I can't touch those books, right? Like Psalms. I'd love to teach Psalms. But I'll never teach Psalms until certain people retire or die. Same thing with Isaiah. It's just, I'm just never going to touch that thing, you know, um, period. So, too bad. Uh, Genesis, yeah, that, that's out of the question, too. So, uh, there are some books I'd love to teach, but they're already being covered anyway. So, we're working as a team, and that's no harm done. Uh, but there are other books that I think are incredibly strategic. 
And here's kind of how it works. Um, have you guys ever played Jenga before? You know, the game where you're removing those things? I had friends who were becoming surgeons and they used to play Jenga all the time to make sure that their hands wouldn't shake. So you could pull crazy. So they were awesome Jenga players. I always lose to them. So I always bet on them to win. It was great. Uh, they never got it. They're like, yeah, thanks for betting on me. Yeah, pay me $5. Uh, anyway. But, uh, you know, to topple Jenga pieces, you could topple the tower by removing every single block off the top. Right? Isn't that possible? You could topple the tower. I mean, I know that's counterintuitive. The whole point is so that you don't topple the tower. But let's just say you wanted to just for fun. And you could only remove one block to do so. You could topple the tower by removing all the blocks on the top until every piece is off. You could do that, right? Or what do you do? Real easy. Besides being like my son and just smashing the whole thing. What do you do? You remove the bottom piece so that the whole topple falls over. You remove one piece that gets you everything. Does that make sense? Um, same thing in maybe sports. If you can find one kind of activity that covers a bunch of different sports, like running or something like that, and you train really well, then you can really compete or have a chance of competing in a variety of different sports or a skill set. You get the picture. If you can find one thing that causes you to get the whole thing or have a conduit or a straight shot for the entirety, that's an effective way to teach. That's an effective way to learn. So the way I pick books is that I pick one book that has a resonance throughout the rest of the Bible to the extent where you, in effect, will actually learn the entire Bible always through one class. Does that make sense? Uh, and this resonance thing is cool. You know, maybe not many of you might know this, but I, I play violin occasionally, not, not much anymore. Um, and when I first got married, I was because, you know, play for weddings, I'm free, so that, you know, that, that makes your wedding cost cheaper. Uh, so students sometimes ask me to play for their weddings, and so I'm practicing to, for this wedding so that you know, their wedding is nice as opposed to hideous because I oh, how I play. And I'm playing in my kitchen. Okay, there's a point to this. I'm playing in my kitchen, playing violin. And you might not know this, but at certain frequencies, certain pitches, objects resonate. And you can hear it if you have a really sensitive ear. So I'm playing violin, and if you're really on in tune, you can make everything resonate. Especially if they're, you know, refrigerator and microwave and stuff, those kind of metallic objects, you can make them resonate. So I'm playing violin, and I'm just having fun because at this point I don't feel like practicing anymore. My self-discipline in that area is really terrible. So I just play violin, and I'm causing my refrigerator to play along with me, and the microwave, and the mixer, and the cabinet, and the table, and they're all harmonizing. It's very hard to hear. You have to be really quiet, and, um, and it was, and I could record it, and I could hear everything playing. And it, it sounds like there's all these things playing, it's just me playing my violin with everything else resonating. Does this make sense? What you want to do is nail one book, like a Second Samuel or a Job or whatever it may be, and you hear the rest of the Bible playing. 
Does that make sense? That's the strategy of this class. You see why this book? Because this book hits a resonating point that runs throughout the entire Bible. The theme of the kingdom, the theme of God as king, the theme more specifically encompassed and encapsulated by the Davidic covenant. It provides an essential lens for both the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you don't understand this book, you cannot understand the book of Psalms. It's just impossible. I mean, okay, I understand that you can definitely love the Psalms, worship through the Psalms, and live the Psalms. But to really get what the psalmist is getting at and all its impact, you're never going to have it. You see, who writes a lot of Psalms? David. And he's writing from his worldview. And embedded in his worldview and embedded in his mind when he writes the Psalms is the Davidic covenant. He has that in mind. So a lot of things, a lot of subtle things start to come out when you start to read the Psalms like that. And have you ever wondered, like, sometimes David's reading a psalm. Does this make sense? David's writing a psalm, and sometimes Jesus says the same thing. And you think, was that prophecy? How did that work? Everyone with me on that? Well, maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like, here's David, and he's writing a psalm. And he has some kind of emotion. It could be sad. Well, let's just say he's sad, because usually he's sad. And... But he's reading this situation and writing the situation through the lens of the Davidic covenant. Hundreds of years later, Jesus, the ultimate Davidic king, comes. And why does he say the same thing? Because he has the same set of promises. Does this make sense? And so it's not this crazy prophecy kind of thing, but it may have a lot of powerful impact. Like, no one should say that except for who? the real king. Does that make sense? No one should say that except for the real king. Power, there are implications like that. Psalms is just such a tapestry of the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> There's some really great books on that, by the way. All the major and minor prophets. Um, yeah, here, I'll just show you one for the minor prophets. Where's Jesus born, and how do we know? I mean, besides the fact that the New Testament tells us where he's born. In the Old Testament, where is he born? Where is he supposed to be born? This is not a trick question. Bethlehem. Good. You're like, I don't know. Maybe it's... Maybe it, no, it's not. No, I just took it. Uh, Bethlehem. Yeah. Bethlehem. I don't even know how to spell that in English anymore. So, um, <clears throat> where's that found? What book? Yeah. Christmas verse, right? Everyone remembers that. Yeah, it gets confusing because the Hebrew versification in Micah is different than English. So I always mess up there. But anyway, Micah 5.2 in English. Uh, have you ever wondered why? Right? All, all we know, because that's all we need to know for Christmas and for Bible trivia. Jesus born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Bingo. I'm from, the, I'm from the master's college. I just showed you down. Yeah, but Why? Why? Who cares? I'm not trying to be flippant. What? Yeah. But where should a king be born? Jerusalem. Right? You think they, you think they traveled, transited Bathsheba from Jerusalem? You're in labor. Quick, drive, you know, ride the donkey to Bethlehem. You know, so you can have their baby there. And then every queen after that goes, you know, no. 
You have it in the palace in Jerusalem. Bethlehem. Why? Not just because that's where David's from. It's because it's trying to tell us something about Jesus and the Davidic covenant. Namely, David started a covenant. Jesus is the new David. Jesus is the new David. There is only one now that can fulfill this covenant, and he's it. Because where David totally fell on his face and failed, Jesus now comes as the new David, as the king who can honestly wield the Davidic covenant in his hand and fulfill it forever. That's why he's born in Bethlehem. Because he is the real David. Okay? Matthew, right? I mean, Matthew is where you see all this happen. Matthew is a book that demands a Davidic covenant lens. Um, just over and over and over, because Matthew is all about the king. Uh, even, even things like this. Go to, go to Romans 1. Read verses 1 through 4. You know, usually when we think of Romans 1, we think of depravity. Well, that doesn't happen for 18 verses. Uh, I mean, and then it happens, but what about the first, you know, 17? Someone read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 1 of Romans. Yeah, good. I mean, verse 3. Born from the seed of David. See that? And I think we might read and we just will just... Well, that's great. He's from the seed of David. You don't realize that one phrase resonates. Right? Remember how I just talked about resonating, violent resonating? That thing resonates with all these passages. Seed. I mean... You will, we will come back to this passage and things will start to make sense. Here, I'll just give you a hint. Genesis 3.15, what do you have? Son, is it, does it say the son of Eve will strike the serpent? No, it says what? Seed. And then later, you have the Davidic covenant and it does some things. And then you have this. This is powerful. This is nothing, this is not something that it just can be taken lightly. Right, you can't just skip over this. And, this. and this one phrase here sets the entire trajectory for how Romans is going to function and who Jesus is and what he demands. Right? Have you ever wondered why Romans 9 through 11 exists? You know, there's the whole Israel question, right? And how, you know, how can God be faithful to Israel? And we have some simplistic answers, but let me put it this way. If... The Davidic covenant is the covenant that saves the world. And yet, parts of the Davidic covenant are broken because Israel is not saved. Then is God really saving the world? No. 
And did Jesus really accomplish the mission? No. That's why you have to have 9 through 11. It's because of the first phrase here that demands an explanation of 9 through 11 if you're really understanding the Davidic covenant. Does this make sense to everybody? It will make more sense as we go through it. You need 2 Samuel to understand Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Uh, you know, I preached on 2 Timothy this summer at Placerita Baptist, 2 Timothy 2.8. <clears throat> Remember Jesus Christ, according, uh, having been raised from the dead and from the seed of David. I mean, what, what are we remembering here? You know, we remember him, the one who overcame death and therefore had power, as well as the one who rules over all and gives hope. You know, that's, that's the nature, the seed of David. It's just not, it's not accidental here. There are all these kind of echoes that bring us back, that ping us back all the way to 2 Samuel. If you don't understand 2 Samuel, you won't understand anything. I mean, frankly, you just won't understand Jesus. Uh, you won't understand what it means for him to be king. This whole lordship controversy that has echoed in the past and has things now even in the present, uh, it's just ludicrous. It's like asking Obama to be the president but not the commander-in-chief or something like that. It just doesn't make any sense. Or like, can, can you be, or like John MacArthur to be president of the Master's College but not its head, or something. Or to ask me to teach Second Samuel, but not teach it. It doesn't make sense. You will understand from Second Samuel who Jesus is a whole lot better. And he's not just your buddy. I mean, is he a friendly man? Is he a loving person? Yes, to be sure. Is he holy? Is he gracious? Is he compassionate? Absolutely. But he is your king. And 2 Samuel puts the grandeur of that back into the concept. So, uh, sometimes we just have such a myopic focus. You know, we're just focused so much on ourselves that we don't really care about these kind of issues. Stop it. You know, don't be selfish. You don't need to be selfish. I mean, you shouldn't be selfish. So if all you're thinking about when you read the Bible is, what has this got to do with me? You're in trouble. Because you won't care what God does anyway. And, you, and we have plenty of events in our, even our own lives that teach us, that demonstrate that you can have joy derived from what God does with other people. When somebody else gets saved, you say, well, I don't care. <laughs> it's not, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah, if you did that, you would probably be beaten to death by everyone else at the Master's College. So, you know, Joe Keller would be on your door like here you have a heart issue. You know, the, I mean, you know, <laughs> and good for him. He should do that. Why, why can we get the joy from other believers and not rejoice even more when our God does something beyond us? Right? Second Samuel opens your eyes to bigger things than just you. So, best lessons from Second Samuel. These are my picks. Are they the best? They're the best to me. Other people have different ones, and great. I'd love to add them to the list. <clears throat> Here's one. Second Samuel reinforces that God's plan has drama. We miss this in Christianity so often, partly because we make everything so boring through flannel graph. 
I mean, if we, I mean, we have the talent to make everything terrible in Christianity. I, you take a perfectly good story and you make it so that everyone falls asleep. Um, I mean, that's, I, I mean, we got talent. It's just in the wrong direction. Second Samuel shows drama. I cannot, I cannot emphasize that enough. I mean, you think Lord of the Rings was cool with like all the ancient poetry and language, and you know they got the Rhine, the shrines, and the and the places, and all that. Second Samuel, man, you open that thing, and it starts off with death. I mean, how how much better can it get? And then and then you get, and then you have ancient poetry that has prophecy in it, and then and then you have all these epic narratives where it's. I mean, you're barely escaping at one point, and you have intrigue, and you have drama, and you have tensions and cliffhangers and all this kind of stuff. We just don't read it like that anymore because we've lost the ability to read a narrative. We're just looking for the facts instead of the art. It's both and. Is Second, is second Samuel real stuff? Yes, every single one of those events happened. I would die for that truth. But it doesn't mean that it's not dramatic, right? I mean, even in the dorms, you're like, oh, dorm drama. And sometimes you hate it, and sometimes it's cool. But it's still drama. Drama is not removed from real life. Second Samuel is real life. Second Samuel has the drama. And that restores the beauty and the wonder of God's plan, right? Um, and, and more on that, because I, I think that will kind of overflow into different things. Second Samuel unveils the glory of the Davidic covenant. You know, I, I like Lord of the Rings, so I'll use a lot of allusions to that. And it really dovetails well with Second Samuel because Second Samuel is about the king. If I could describe the Davidic covenant in any single idea that you could really grasp the drama of it. Do you remember in Lord of the Rings <coughs> there's this sword Remember that? And it's used to cut off Sauron's hand. Remember that? And then, then it shatters. Right? And it's kept in Rivendell. Everyone remember that? And who's the only one who can pick up that sword in the end? The true king. That's the nature of the Davidic covenant. It is crafted in a way... I mean, and that's the sword. I mean, what's the purpose of the sword? So that, you know, Aragorn can just be like, hey, I'm the true king. You know, that's not the point. The point is that that sword will lead to the death blow of evil, right? That's the Davidic king. That's the Davidic covenant. And it is crafted in a way that it is given to David, and David shatters it. Surprise, right? You'd think that David would be successful. No, David's a loser, and he shatters it. But that's intentional. So that's okay. It's not like God is like, <gasps> you, know, you know, oh no, what are we going to do? But Jesus, help, you know. It's not like that. There's no, there's no plan B. That was intentional to create dramatic tension. And every king from then on tries to grab that sword but can't put it together until Jesus comes and through a series of things you realize he's the one that can pull the sword and he then uses the sword of the Davidic covenant to save the world. Uh, that's kind of Matthew, right? For he will save his people, what? From their sins, right? There's, there's just all this stuff coming together here. Second Samuel not only unveils the glory of the Davidic covenant. Second Samuel helps us to understand the rest of human history. It is the search for the king. When David breaks the sword of the Davidic covenant, so to speak, 
All you're waiting for now is the one who can rule them all to come. That's who, that's who you're waiting for. That's what a major emphasis in the rest of redemptive history is throughout the rest of the Old Testament, like the book of Kings. You're waiting for the real king to come back, to come. And it gives you this great lens on who this king has to be. By the way, oh, never mind, we'll tell you. We'll figure out later. Second Samuel, not only that, helps us to understand the depths of human depravity. Even good humans can be very wicked. Uh, David is the case in point. And we need to be very careful here <clears throat> because uh, we don't want to say, hey, we're better than David. No, we're not better than David. We're equally bad. That's not the point. Uh, but the point is, is that it helps us have realism about people. Not only their failures, but also their redemption. Right? David wasn't the best guy, but that doesn't mean he was unredeemable. 2 Samuel helps us to understand, helps us to love God's wisdom, power, and ability to execute his purposes. There are times when you just see how God puts everything together and it's better than Ocean's Eleven. And you're like, well, look, Danny Ocean or George Clooney or whoever, he's really cool because he can put together this whole plot or whatever. That's nice. God does it for real. Right? George Clooney just made that up. Actually, he, he, he took it from an older movie. So, I mean, it's not even creative in that sense. Uh, but God does it for real. Does that make sense? And there are some things where you're just thinking, well, how did that happen? And that fulfilled this prophecy over here? And you went through all this to get there? And just think, that's crazy. I could never see that happening. Yeah, because God made it. And so 2 Samuel thus makes us acutely aware that God is king. Um, oftentimes, shallow worship and kind of coldness toward God is due to the fact that we think of ourselves way too high and we think of God way too low. And what 2 Samuel kind of exploits is that there is this great chasm between what it means that God is sovereign and God rules and he's the capital K-I-N-G and you're nothing. And 2 Samuel just is a reinforcement of that idea. But what makes 2 Samuel what my favorite with all those kinds of things, particularly the drama and the Davidic covenant and all this, the reason I love 2 Samuel ultimately is because it exalts Christ so vividly and dramatically prepares the way for him. It exalts Christ so vividly and it uh, just dramatically prepares the way for him. Uh, you never read the Gospels the same way again after reading Second Samuel. Uh, there are just some moments, <clears throat> I don't want to give away too much, but you know, like in the temptation narrative and, and how that thing moves. And that's, that to me, teaching a class on Matthew would be a huge step in forging the sword of the Davidic covenant. You know, and he did that. And they're just like, whoa, that's crazy. And he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey. And that's, that is when I think, and I would argue, that the Davidic covenant is placed in his hand. It's yours now. Um, there's just this angle of drama there. 
you just you just can't always see it because you just read it. oh he's riding on a donkey he's going to Jerusalem they're singing okay great next but you, you miss you miss how it would be in a movie see we're a movie culture does that make sense and we've lost the art of storytelling kind of verbally we need to see it now in in light form you know visual form but what you got to regain is the art of making a movie in your mind and in your words as you start to talk about these things. And 2 Samuel really brings out the glory of what is taking place. It exalts Christ. I mean, and how it goes about that, this isn't just some kind of straight typology thing. We'll talk about more about how that works, but there are connections. And they're better than just trying to transfer something over real quick and real sloppy. They're better than that because they're accurate. Any questions? Okay. Let's talk about misconceptions about Samuel. <coughs> Second Samuel. First one. First one. I know what happens in Second Samuel. You do not. You have no clue. I mean, I even went into Second Samuel with that misconception. That's why I wrote it down first. Second uh, Samuel is very, very difficult to unravel. It looks so simple on the outside, like an easy nut to crack. It's hard. I mean, the, see, Minor Prophets is naturally appealing, right? Because there's prophecy and end times and God's cataclysmic apocalyptic judgment and all these kinds of cool things. And you're like, oh, Minor Prophets. You know, and no one talks about them ever. You know, Life of David, everyone talks about Life of David. Everyone preaches about David and Bathsheba. That's so common. That attitude that I know it already will kill your Bible study. Uh, every, every year I get dumber. I'm convinced of this. Even if, I, even if I appear before everyone to get smarter, I get dumber. Because there's just more you don't know. And the more, and you, you really realize that, right? Like if you said, I really know the book of 2 Samuel, I would just, I mean, here's a simple question, right? Can you tell me every single Hebrew word in order of 2 Samuel and analyze why each word is in that specific order and analyze how that shows the camera angle, theology, and perspective on the book. Can you do that off the top of your head? If the answer is no, then you don't know anything. You don't. And you say, can you do that, Chow? No. That's, I already admitted I don't know anything, so I'm already in the loud and clear. <coughs> but we're going to learn that together. And it's not going to be like me diagramming Hebrew all day or something like that. We're just going to flow through and we're going to get as much as we can. But if you think you know what happens in 2 Samuel, you don't. There are things that happen and you're just like, oh, I didn't even know that happened. That's weird. Second, 2 Samuel is just a bunch of stories or history. Uh, we've already kind of covered this a little bit um, in talking about narratives. 2 Samuel is a rich presentation of theology and action. What are narratives in the Bible? In essence, narratives in the Bible are theology in action. Not just theological realities proclaimed, but theology put into real-life situations and God interacting and applying multiple theological truths and multiple theological promises with multiple theological agendas all in real time. 
do you see why narratives can be a little more complicated? Because with a propositional statement like <clears throat> God is love, that might be an allusion to all these different passages. And that has complexity in and of itself. But that's just one statement about one topic. Does this make sense to everybody? But when you have a statement like, and David killed Goliath. Let's take one in 1 Samuel, since we don't want to spoil anything in 2 Samuel. And then all of a sudden you start to realize, well, that's the fulfillment of this. And that actually corresponds to that promise over there. And that actually illustrates this. And then there's the Philistine connection over there. And do you see how that, can, that one statement, it's just not about one theological truth. It's about multiple theological truths all happening in real time, all happening together. Does that make sense to everybody why it's a lot more complicated to run through this? If you just read this as a bunch of stories, you're never going to get anything out of it because you're reading it wrong. Third misconception. First one is I know what happens in 2 Samuel. Second one is 2 Samuel is a bunch of stories or history. Third, David is a good king. David is a terrible king. The entire point of 2 Samuel is to tell you that David is terrible. You're like, no, yes. <laughs> You're like, I thought David, I thought 2 Samuel was like, David's a good guy. No, the whole point, like, David even says at the end of the book, I'm terrible. <laughs> it's like the end. <laughs> it's like, oh man. Uh, it's just that we've been programmed in our heart with this inherent admiration for biblical characters. Now, we don't want to get prideful. We don't want to say, hey, David's terrible. I'm not terrible. I'm better than David. You don't want that attitude. We're all terrible, but David is terrible. Just because they're in the Bible does not sanction them to instantaneous, perfected holiness and them being the model. They can do wrong things. And in the OT, sometimes those wrong things are exploited. Most of the book of 2 Samuel is used to tell you David's a terrible king. It doesn't mean he's not, he's the paradigm, and the, the reason he's a paradigm is because, oh, I erased the Davidic covenant. That's what saves him every single time. But David as a person, terrible king. That's why the sword is broken. You see that? That's kind of the point. God says, here's the Davidic covenant. Look at this cool sword. And it's like, oh, oh no. You know? David's like, I'm terrible. God, you have to save this. God says, I will. By the way, one of the underlying, um, and it, you know, I wouldn't use this in an apologetic argument because you don't have the time to develop this, but a divine Messiah is an absolute conclusion you get from 2 Samuel. You're like, Really? Yes, a divine Messiah. You need a divine Messiah. You need the true king to become the Davidic king so that the Davidic covenant can be fulfilled. And we'll see that. And it'll come out alive toward the end of the book. Actually, that's not true. It'll come out in the very beginning, but you might not see it so quickly. But I'll try to bring it out to you. Fourth, 2 Samuel is not very theological or devotional. Uh, for one, it's not. For two, devotional is dependent on you. I already lectured on this on Minor Prophets, so those of you in that class, apologies for redundancy. But devotion, devotions are dependent on you, not the Bible. Right? I mean, what does the word devotion mean anyway? 
committed. I like you show devotion to a spouse or you show devotion to a school or a team. If you're really devoted, you know, you're going to go to the Mustang Madness or whatever it's called, you know, or whatever. Or you're going to go to chapel and stuff like that. If you're devoted, you're going to do these things. So when you're having your devotions for five minutes, how does that show devotion? Ever think about that? It's like, oh, I'm going to do my devos, my one-minute devos. You know, they have a one-minute one minute devotional Bible. It's an oxymoron. You can't have a one-minute devotional like you tell your wife or your husband, I'm devoted to you for one minute. Like, what wonderful devotion. You know, I'm glad for your great and long-suffering commitment. You know, the, you know I want a divorce. I mean, I mean, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that's tantamount to what you're saying. If you say the Bible's not devotional, it's not the Bible's problem, it's your problem. It means you're not committed enough to actually digging into the scripture to learn and to love and thereby to live what the text says. It's your problem. It's because, yeah, it's just like, oh, Abner, it's not devotional material. So you're saying that that material makes you uncommitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I didn't mean that. Well, that's exactly what you said. So change, right? Takes a lot of hard work. Right, this kind of analysis, I mean, I'll be frank with you, it's hard, right? There's lots of fun things, fun, quote-unquote, fun things to do when you're really giving into the flesh. Right? I like to play games, you know, like Wii or Xbox or, I don't know, uh, like online games. I mean, who knows? Or make, go to Farmville on Facebook. I don't do any of those things. But, you know, or read Lostpedia and become a Lostpedia know-it-all or whatever. All those things could be fun. It takes a lot of hard work to start digging in, but there's nothing more rewarding in the end. It's hard. It's not easy. But you've got to be disciplined and do it. Devotion here. That's what we're talking about. Um, if you say Second Samuel's not very theological or devotional, it's just your fault. It really is your fault. Any part of the Bible, for that matter, falls into the same logic. Finally, 2 Samuel has little impact on the rest of the Bible. You know, I can just, it's just a bunch of stories that happened in the past, and it doesn't really relate to my life now. Anyways, so far from the truth. 2 Samuel impacts the past, it'll impact your future, and most of all, it impacts your relationship with Jesus Christ. Because when he fulfills the Davidic covenant, and if he's the real Davidic king, you better know what that means. And therefore, you better know how to treat him and how to honor him. Does that make sense? It has great impact on the rest of the story of the Bible, which is from creation all the way to new creation, and you're part of that. So it impacts you. Any questions? Okay, uh, well, I got you out four minutes early. See, this is really good. But here's your assignment, because we're on schedule. Because I planned this class, because this class isn't as suicidal as uh, Minor Prophets. Minor Prophets is definitely suicide, because you have to do 12 times the amount of work for this cl that class is this class. Because um, <laughs> of 12 books, you know. But for Thursday, 
We're continuing and finishing the introduction to 2 Samuel, and we are on schedule. So that means SVP number one is due Thursday. And you're like, whoa, it says read, skim the entire book of 2 Samuel. That's due by Thursday? Yep. (laughs) And this is not like a detailed read. Does that make sense, everybody? That means you're just like, I'm, 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 you're like, hey, I remember what this book, I remember some general events of this book. Like, I know David and Bathsheba's way later, but I know, you know, David goes to Jerusalem, there's the Ark thing, Davidic covenant here. Everyone with me, I want it means to skim. It does not mean detailed read. It means reacquainting yourself with the book. Okay? You will have time to read through detailed later, and then answer those questions. Alright? Good. Let's have two minutes early. <laughs>